News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's something for you to check out potentially this weekend. It's a temporary exhibit, so hopefully you can get down and check this out. It aims to tell the story of Chinese Canadians in Vancouver. Opens tomorrow, on Saturday, August 15th, called A Seat at the Table. It's going to explore Chinese food and culture, and it's a preview of what the Chinese Canadian Museum hopes to accomplish one day. Arnicky Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Grace Wong, who's co-chair of the Chinese Canada Museum Society of BC. Can you tell me a bit about what a visitor will experience when they go to see this new exhibit, A Seat at the Table? Well, um, first of all, um, when they come to the exhibit, uh, it's in itself in a historic building. So there's, it's in the Hansen building, it's on the main floor, and of course it's in Chinatown. So as they come in, um, and they're going to see, um, in fact, hanging from the ceiling, uh, some pictures, and all those pictures are of uh, different um, individuals from the various Chinese communities and, and through time. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, they, um, I think, with a seat at the table, the theme of kind of food and restaurant culture, um, people really relate to, um, you know, from uh, people who have went to some of the restaurants that you see their Hong Kong cafe uh, was really well known in the day and then the famous apple tarts. Uh, but then there's also uh, stories and, and uh, images, I guess, from um, other places in BC, because this is intended as kind of a taste of what the Chinese Canadian Museum will be working toward, which is to um, a provincial hub that would be in Chinatown. Uh, but then there's regional hubs and spokes uh, throughout BC, because the Chinese Canadian history is indeed throughout BC. And, you know, even Chinatown itself is this physical example of the long-standing history of Chinese culture right here in British Columbia. You know, often we think of British Columbia as having a white history, but Chinatown is the perfect example that there is a long-standing Chinese history here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also the interactions, right? Because I think that um, if it's Vancouver Chinatown, for example, I mean, so many stories of people who were university students and going to Chinatown for dinners and, or, you know, after hours because it was one of the places that was still open and fun and not too expensive. And, and so many people in Vancouver remember that, right? And, and those are people not necessarily Chinese-Canadian, but just all people. So the interactions um, with this food restaurant culture is something that is um, special. And, you know, it could be a, a small, well, kind of a classic story of, oh, every small town you get to, you must, you must come across a Chinese Canadian restaurant and, and so on. But, you know, again, a place where there were so many interactions and, and memories, uh, you know, made when there's family dinners or celebrations or, oh, every Friday we went to, you know, uh, this restaurant for you know, whatever the dishes were, right? So, so yeah, we, we hope it evokes that and we hope it evokes also people to share stories, you know, like, like some of their own. So, so there are, there is an exhibit, an ability to, whether you write a little note or, or record something or where you attend to share some stories. So, yeah. And I think that the exploration of food culture through history is such an interesting way to examine a society. It's not just about the food that's on the plate. 
ingredients indicate what migration or trade might have been happening at that time. The position of who sits in what spot at the table may indicate hierarchy or status, the methods in which food is served, I mean, on and on and on. It's a really interesting way to explore a human culture. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also the adaptiveness, right, um, and the adaptations that take place. So, you know, uh, Chinese food in this city versus another location in another part of BC might be different because of the ingredients available and the adaptation and, and so on. So, um, I think it reflects that as well. Yeah, yeah. And as far as the museum itself goes, it's my understanding that this is all quite new. The society is newly formed, and we looking for a site for the provincial hub so the provincial hub museum so this exhibit is uh, is what we call temporary exhibit because it's it'll be up for a while but it is um in a sense it's it's not we don't have the provincial hub museum right we don't have the site that takes quite a lot of planning and um a lot of work and um but one day, <laughs> hopefully not too far off, we'll have you know major provincial museum, Chinese native museum, and um, the the theater table is an example, an example of what might be there. Yeah, and it's so imperative now more than ever that we get something like this built. Considering the amount of anti-Chinese racism that was experienced most recently through the pandemic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so this this highlights for us why it's so important that we. At the museum, it gives us that much, even more sense of purpose. You know, it's Grace Wong, co-chair of the Chinese Canada Museum Society of BC. If you'd like to check this, check this exhibit out. It's at the Hansing Athletic Club. It's at twenty seven East Pender Street. Just check it out online for their hours, but it is temporary. So if you're interested, make sure you go. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the real estate market right now is kind of all over the map. We're seeing pockets of things that are very busy, exceeding even the stats that we had a year ago, and then other areas, not so much. I mean, just the other day, we were talking about the big uptick in particular condo sales in the Okanagan. Here in Vancouver, though, things are a little different. So we thought, let's get a picture of what is going on there. Joining us now is Dane Idle, founder of Idle Insights. Dane, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me back. How does the market look to you right now in Greater Vancouver? Yeah, it's 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 really a continuation of inventory increasing rapidly with sales definitely seeing a rebound, but only a rebound can basically in continuance to that anomaly low that we had in basically April and May. So we did see the uptick in June and July um, right across the board. However, sales in the condo market are still down 250 uh, average over the last five years. And, and, and the sales numbers in the detached market did tick up to just over uh, 1,000, but that's the first time that that happened in the past three years. And the three years preceding that, that happened over 30 times. Um, so we are definitely in a, in a different phase in this market cycle. It will be going lower longer, and this market has really kind of fed off of that free money offered by the government once that comes to an end and some of these uh, eviction bans are lifted, we're going to see a whole new segment of the market kick off as well. In what way? What do you mean? We're going to see inventory continue to rise rapidly and that need to sell continue to rise and any segment of a demand. Um, there will always be demand in Greater Vancouver. However, the idea of any investment occurring is, is just not a, not a true circumstance. So 
the investment community is very much on the sidelines. While there will always be a neat base uh, to to purchase, thirty percent of the market, old rule of thumb, will always buy and sell, uh, independent of whatever the market conditions are. However, it, it will be on that lower spectrum when market conditions are in a rough rough patch going forward. Right. Okay. It makes it hard to predict, Dane. How does how do you, how does anybody make plans <laughs> then when it comes to real estate if it seems like it's all over the map? You know, it, it can be a challenging time. However, ITEL Insights does guide you with, you know, the market cycle projections. Um, and we've been very, very accurate in both the condo and the detached market. Since the peak of 2018 for the condo market, prices are down 10%. Um, and we are anticipating that to be a total correction of 30%. So going forward, if I was a seller in the condo market, I would be aggressive and, and get activity going early in the listing because there is um, some kind of stigma attached to the condo market that if it's on the market for anything over 30 or 40 days, that it's just not a sellable property. So then you're going to have to start chasing that market lower and, and right. that ultimately leads to lower sale prices. So we do advise to be aggressive in your initial list, get some activity around your property and hopefully achieve a sale because going forward, it will be a more of a negative position. Can you always sell a property? Yes. It's just depending on what price you could actually sell it at. It's so interesting that you say that, oh, if something's on the market for more than 30 days, people start to think it's unsellable. That used to be the norm. Like Properties used to be on the market for a couple of months before they sold. That's right. And, and that, but we've come out of such a phase where if it was on the market for more than two weeks, something was wrong with it right over the past <laughs> few years. <laughs> so, so the market sentiment is very much shifting. And, and that's something that they are actually starting to wake up and realize is that the buyers are in control of this market. So if they just simply refuse to pay some high level prices, they'll actually see you could you can stay in touch with that property and see it, that price start to continue to drop. And then maybe eventually go ahead and, and take advantage of it at a certain price point. But it is almost fun for the buyers for the first time in a long time here in Greater Vancouver to see some of the sellers start to reel rather than sellers sitting back and just accepting multiple offers left and right. Right. So everybody seems like they're having to work a little harder to find what they're looking for. Absolutely. And and, and there was, you know, uh, in the earlier part of the year and, 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 you know, right after we were kind of left out of our houses, to, to shift out to the valleys and, and shift out to the islands. And, yeah. and that'll still continue to probably permeate for a while. However, that was something that we actually did forecast pre-pandemic to occur as well. Um, it just, of course, exasperated that situation. But living in Greater Vancouver has become very expensive. But some people that have actually sold out near the highs or you know during 2018, they've been renting and just seeing what was available. And, and now they are moving out right. to the islands. It's, it's a quieter life. It's not that hustle and bustle of Greater Vancouver. So when do you think we will start to see this, the change in the market that you were talking about there? Like how long is that going to be? Right. So I, I think that the buyers are starting to understand that they are in control of this, this market. Um, that's something that we have been saying for the past couple of years would be occurring and, and, and truthfully has. The detached prices are down $230,000 from their peak already. And, and, and so that will be a continuation. Uh, the detached market does move faster than the condo market. Uh, always has, always will. It's more of a finite section of uh, availability. So that we're forecasting to probably bottom in 2021. Inventory will continue to rapidly rise up here in the early portions of 2021. That's one of the last kind of curiosities for us is will inventory continue to rise into the fall and possibly even into the winter months this year? Since we did miss out on spring, we're seeing that late, uh, later rise to the inventory, likewise with sales. But will that continue to trump uh, basically seasonal factors this mm-hmm. year because we had such an interesting year so far? So 
that's one of the curiosities. Um, other than that, the, the, the forecasted price will probably be around $1.4 million during 2021 for the detached. And that is only $80,000 lower than prices that we did see in February of 2019. Of course, not too many people want to admit that, but that has, yeah. that is already in the database. All right. It just seems to me, Dane, uh, you know, that the market seems more resilient than we thought it was. You know what? That's a true fact. Um, and, and again, that's 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 something of a shift that I believe is occurring. And, and then you're going to see it be less resilient than we thought that it was because it was resilient early on. But it will really shift um, the buyer's mentality from, hey, listen, this is a discount. Prices are down $230,000 to right. Once they drop 300, 350, they go, oh my gosh, I don't want to pay for a depreciating asset. And then so that'll be a fear of overpaying. And as prices actually do bottom, there, there will be a fear-based purchase rather mm-hmm. than seeing it as an investment opportunity because you will hear about you know, delinquency payments, foreclosures going about. So it will just change the buyer's mindset even more. When right. they were hearing about multiple, multiple offers, they felt more comfortable making one. When you start hearing about foreclosures, you're, you're, you're not so comfortable uh, offering a price on a property. All right, Dane, we'll be talking to you again. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you, Simi, and look forward to the next time. That's Dane Idle, founder of Idle Insights, a real estate analyst company. Of course, we'll be talking to him again about all of that. This is Mornings with Simi. Love a little footloose there on a Friday morning. All right, let's talk about the list of places where it looks like we are having some COVID-19 exposure problems. Uh, we'll talk about nightclubs and more. Nikki Reitmeyer joining us. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I love that Greg played Footloose coming love in it. because th- that's kind of what this feels like now that you can't dance at nightclubs anymore. Like it's the sequel <laughs> to Footloose. Footloose 2, pandemic, no dancing at nightclubs. Yeah, it turns out John Lithgow was right after all uh, <laughs> in that movie. Um, I wanted to point out here, we're talking about these problems. Like we've had a couple problems with some exposures at nightclubs that we're going to get to in a moment. But in, in Toronto this morning, Nikki, have you heard this one? No, I haven't. I'm curious. They have just announced this morning that they have the possible exposure of almost, they said roughly, 550 people uh, have been exposed to a worker with COVID-19 at the Brass Rail Strip Club in Toronto. Whoa, so just one club. One club, one worker on the nights of August 4th, 5th, 7th, and 8th. That's just in case anybody was in Toronto wow. that week. But they think it, up to roughly 550 individuals were exposed to a worker uh, that did test positive for COVID-19 on those four nights. So we think we have a problem, right? We were worried about number five orange and other places. That's yeah. a huge exposure. Well, geez, I guess, you know, if you want to take a look at the impact of coming into contact with one worker at one bar who could possibly transmit the virus. I mean, here you have one individual who's possibly spread it to over 500 people. I mean, geez, crazy. That's yeah, that is that's pretty shocking. And it makes a good case for people who want to see nightclubs and bars shut down or stricter regulations on them. Something done to address this problem. Yeah, I found myself this week really are like struggling with that argument in my head that part of me initially did say, you know what, just shut them down. We're having too many problems at nightclubs because there's another exposure alert, right? For Levels Nightclub. Yes, that's right. Levels Nightclub had an exposure alert. They 
closed down for a big old deep clean. But then this video was released of what has been actually going on there. And they've not been following the COVID-19 regulations as they are supposed to be. Because in this video, it shows, you know, a DJ playing, which is fine. It's fine. But there's people up there dancing. You're not supposed to be dancing right now. Again, I know it sounds like something out of Footloose. You're not supposed to be <laughs> dancing right now because of the, the COVID-19 rules. They have patrons pouring drinks into this each other's mouths. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you would see typically happen at a nightclub with a bunch of young people back in, you know, 2019, which under any other circumstances, I don't care what goes on inside the nightclubs, you know, but here now dealing with what we're dealing with, you got to be following these rules if you want not just your establishment to stay open, but the whole industry to stay open. They're all sort of relying on each other here to follow the rules so that Dr. Bonnie Henry yeah. doesn't say, okay, that's it. Nightclubs are now closed. And of course, you know, in hindsight, I saw a representative of sort of the, the nightclub associations saying, or the, you know, the beverage association saying, uh, you know, they didn't know the rules. They didn't know that the rules had changed. Oh, that's not that an there was excuse. No dancing. That's not an no. excuse. Not now with everything that's happened. No way. I thought the same thing, too. I thought, oh, come on. Shut that's a down. weak excuse. If you don't know the rules, then you shouldn't be open in the first place. If you're not even looking at the rules or following the rules, then why are well, you even opening? See, that's the thing. I agree with you 100%. Because earlier in the week when I was struggling with this, I felt bad, I thought, because I know there's a lot of businesses that are following the rules. And I don't want businesses to be punished that are following the rules. But now you've got, if you had a couple cases of people who are claiming ignorance of the rules right now and what's going on, then unfortunately you have to say, shut it down. If you can't learn, if then you really shouldn't be operating a business. See, I, I, I disagree with you, but I kind of agree with you at the same time. I think that now is the time we start slapping people with fines. Why are we not issuing oh. fines to businesses that aren't following the rules? Because in that case, sure, you can keep a nightclub open if you know you want to go with your, you know, get all dressed up with your five other friends no. and you guys want to sit at a table and listen to really loud music, and not even be able to talk to each what other is and the pay point? 20 bucks for a cocktail. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, fill your boots, right? I don't know. Whatever. What if that's point? what you want to do, as long as you're doing it safely. It's again beyond our comprehension as to why you'd want to but if that's what you want to do then you know who cares whatever it's the same thing essentially you're doing at a restaurant it's just a whole heck of a lot more expensive and louder but if there's nightclubs that aren't following those rules that are allowing dancing that are breaking the rules then those are the ones that should be slapped with a big expensive fine so that the whole industry doesn't have to shut down but the ones that are wrecking it for everyone else are punished appropriately Right. And this also goes to the banquet hall situation too, right? That if there's banquet halls out there holding private parties in violation of the rules and letting, you know, people get together and dance and have a good time, then yeah, they're going to have to be shut down. We heard Adrian Dix yesterday say that, that, that public health officials are going to be out and about this weekend monitoring banquet halls. Yeah, and rightfully so, because again, I don't think that you should shut down every single banquet hall out there because maybe some are throwing events for 20 people, which is totally within the rules, or 49 people, which is in with the, within the rules. No, provided but that the they're ones- keeping people apart, though. That's the tricky yes. thing. You can hold a party, but are you making sure people are sitting apart? Are you making sure there's no like too much mingling going on? So they may think, oh, it's under 50 people, it's fine. No, there's other rules that go along with this. And you know, a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, we might have been okay with that. We're not okay with that anymore because we're at an an unsustainably high number now. 
Yeah, not with the way that cases are climbing. So I really hope that government officials continue to crack down on these places and start issuing fines. Keep yeah. the industry going because these businesses need the money, but crack down on the offenders, please. Well, let's find out what people think. So do you think it's time to hit some people with fines, hit some businesses with fines if they are not following the rules? Because you know what? It's too late in this game to be saying that you didn't know what the rules are. This is Mornings with Simi. We talk to a lot of amazing professors and academics on the show every day. But what you probably don't realize is most of the people that we talk to don't dedicate 100% of their time to research. That is, until our next guest came along. Xiao Wei Song is an amazing scientist who studies brain imaging, and she has now officially become the first full-time researcher in Fraser Health. It's kind of a big deal. So we thought we would talk to her this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. What is it? What is it that you study? Um, yes, first of all, I'm very honored to be uh, appointed by Fraser Health and then uh, in the partnership with the Surrey Hospital Foundation as the very first Fraser Health senior clinical uh, scientist. Um, so uh, I want to use this uh, semi uh, Sarah show to express my. Um, uh, appreciation, first of all. Yeah, to answer your question, um, my research focus on uh, studying the brain health in the process of aging. So I use neuroimaging methods, for example, uh, MRI, to uh, see what's happening in the brain as people get older. They start to accumulate. They accumulate uh, different kinds of changes, which uh, collectively can affect their health and their performance and their cognition and uh, brain function. Okay, so is this as we get older, things change in our brain that affects like how we move around, how we do things? Yeah, a kind of. Uh, actually, um, there are multiple different changes of uh, different changes, and then uh, in the past, that uh, most of the studies only looking at uh, one thing at one time. But of course, the human uh, system and the brain is a whole system. So our research allowed to look at the uh, problems collectively. So we put them together to uh, really detect uh, the changes right. and to assess the changes. So I know one of the things that you're working on developing is a whole brain health index. What does that mean? Yeah, we call that uh, the whole brain uh, Brain atrophy, whole brain atrophy and vision index, uh, which is a evaluation, a detection of uh, all different kinds of uh, changes that we can see on MRI. And some of the changes can be major and clinical meaningful, and doctors use those to uh, support uh, some clinical diagnosis, but some of uh, other changes that may be small at the time they first uh, uh, merge, emerge, and then they were considered as a subclinical or not clinically meaningful yet. However, these things can accumulate, can interact to determine the further changes oh. uh, in the brain and affect uh, how the brain works. Uh, so our uh, brain atrophy vision index allow us to evaluate of different kinds of these changes and then put them together and then uh, as a uh, a quantitative measure so that we can tell like uh, um, out of 28 uh, scale, like uh, how, how many points an mm-hmm. uh, individual uh, has. Oh, so fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Shall we? Thank you so much for being here. 
And thank you. Thank you very much. And good luck with your research. That is Xiaowei Song, who is a senior clinical research scientist at Fraser Health. And she has just become the first full-time research scientist at Fraser Health. Now, you may not think that's a big deal. It actually is a very big deal because most research scientists and doctors also have to do some kind of practice, right? To continue, just they do the practice in order to be able to see patients in order to be able to continue their research. So they're not fully doing research when they could be, you know, getting some really big breakthroughs. But this position is a full-time research one. And as you heard, doing a lot of work looking at the brain, frailty, aging, all of those impacts. And they got funding from uh, the Surrey Hospital Foundation and Fraser Health to do that. So good for them. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about heading back to school. We know the plan to make that happen has, well, it's been changing. It's changed a couple of times already. And I would say it is likely we will see even more changes before, you know, teachers and students start heading back to the classroom in September. We wanted to talk about why people, some people are upset with the plan. So joining us now is Stacey Wakeline, founder of Safe September BC. They held a protest at Health Minister Adrian Dix's office yesterday. Let's find out why that is. Stacey, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, what is it that you don't like about this plan? Personally, as a parent, and I'm hearing the same from other parents that we are concerned, there just seems to be a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of mixed messaging. And we're concerned what that looks like going forward for our kids and um, schools going forward this year. Right. Have you heard anything from your the personal school district where your children go to school? There have been. Um, I've I've looked at our district's website, and there are the letters shared from the Ministry of Education. Um, nothing really going above and beyond that. Um, it looks like they are waiting until the end of August to hear what the ministry has to say finally. Um, before school starts. And personally, I would have hoped to see maybe a little more dialogue. Um, I know I'm hearing from a lot of parents that they are hoping that their districts would have done an emergency meeting, or there would have just been a little more communication and not just waiting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you want to see in schools then to make this happen? What would feel safe for you? As a parent, I would like to see what's happening in schools mirror what we've been told is safe outside in our communities. So ensuring that there is physical distancing, that the opportunity to um, engage in hand hygiene as needed is there. And um, when physical distancing isn't available, Mm -hmm. that masks are are, available. Masks are required or there are some sort of shields. Like when we go to the grocery store, the um, staff is protected behind the shield. But we don't know yet, Stacey, if that's not going to be the case. Like from what I understand is that's the plans that they are working on right now to make that kind of stuff happen. We sure hope so. Yeah, the way it it stands right now, there just are a lot of questions. So we're we're really pushing for more of a solid plan. Um, a lot of parents would have liked to see even more of a pushback just to get this all ironed out instead of going right. back and, and realizing, hey, this isn't working. We need to 
to right. change it. So my mm-hmm. understanding is, because we talked to the education minister yesterday, that mm-hmm. all, every district will have to follow the guidelines of the, you know, the, the plans that are put in place by the BC Centre for Disease Control, which is on their website, the same as restaurants and everything, and like you talked about there, right, mm-hmm. workplaces. So I, I'm assuming that that's what they're doing. They're trying to figure out how to physically distance in these classrooms. Are you okay with kind of changing up your child's schedule to make all that happen? I would be more than happy to do that. Absolutely. And some of parents' concerns have come from the fact that we're concerned that that isn't realistic without some some real changes, just because we know a lot of kids in a classroom, it, there isn't right. the opportunity to distance. So what are you telling your child or your children then? Would you like your child to wear a mask? And you can make that choice for them, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, definitely. We're, we're playing it by ear, to be honest. We haven't made a decision yet. Um, and definitely, if, if going back to school seems like the safe option, kids will definitely be told, and my kids are in high school, so it's it's a little easier to communicate right. that. Mm-hmm. So you can, what have you told them about going back to school? How do you want them to approach it if they're in high school? Very much like they're approaching life right now. Um, when they, when we're out at a store, when they um, meet up with friends that we're distancing, that we're wearing a mask if, if needed, um, I definitely trust them to, to make those decisions and um, we're also being honest that we don't know what this year will look like. And we are talking to them. I believe schools are the best place for our kids. Mm-hmm. That's where they're, they'll be um, happiest and they thrive there. And we're just waiting, I guess, like a lot of other people until the end of the month to see what it's going to look like. Right. Okay. So as part of Safe September BC, then do you have more protests planned, more things to raise awareness? Absolutely. Um, We'll do whatever we feel is necessary. There are a lot of parents that are concerned. They have um, health concerns and they're just concerned with there seems to be a lack of choice, whether it's Um, returning to the classroom or engaging in more of a distance learning option. They're worried that their kids will lose their seat in school if their child is not there. So we're hoping to see um, a little more answers in that regard. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a fluid situation. We have hope that the ministry will, will make the the decisions that are necessary to keep our, our kids and their teachers and their school community safe. Absolutely. Stacey, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Stacey Wakeline, founder of Safe September BC, part of a, a group that wants to raise awareness with the Ministry of Education that they're not happy with kind of how slowly things are going with this back-to-school plan. Now, as I mentioned, we spoke to Education Minister Rob Fleming yesterday, and, and I think to me, hearing from parents and teachers and all sides on this is I think where the disconnect is that, you know, the ministry has an overall plan and they have sent that now to the school districts. And it is now up to the school districts to figure out how in the individual schools, which really only the school districts know about, right? Ministry doesn't know about the individual schools, how this physical distancing and the rules are going to look. So now they have to go like school by school in their district and figure out how are we going to do it in this school? How are we going to do it over here? That is the process that is going on right now. Not a lot of information to the public about that, right? Because I'm sure they're just kind of furiously trying to figure this out. 
But when you don't have that information out there in the public, I think it does create this impression for parents that nothing's going on, that nothing is happening, and they want to know more. Of course they do. Everybody's a little scared about this process, and it is a scary process. That's why we're going to continue to talk about it. And if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. But I want to make it clear that this weekend, that if you have banquet halls where a private party takes place, you will be seeing environmental health officers and people in public health. And it's our expectation that the limits on the number of people uh, at parties will be in place this weekend everywhere in B.C. Okay, so that is Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday taking particularly aim at events and parties that are happening in banquet halls. So we wanted to find out more about this. Like, what exactly is going on in banquet halls? Like, okay, they might be following the 50 people limit, but are they making sure people are distancing or are people parting it up and having a good time? So we wanted to figure that out. What is going on in banquet halls this morning? So joining us, we have two guests to help us talk about that. We have Souk Mann, who's the owner of Crown Palace Banquet Hall in Surrey. Souk, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here, Sammy. And that's Michael Guerra, also the food and beverage manager at Riverside Banquet Halls in Richmond. Michael, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Now, Suk, I'm going to start with you. Are there still events being held at the Crown Palace Banquet Hall? Yes, there are. And how big are they? 50 people, up to 100, 150, sometimes up to 200, if we can social distance them properly. But are you allowed to do that, though? You're only, I thought it was maximum 50 no matter what. 50 people in one room. So if you have 50 people in one room, you can have 50 people in another room and 50 people in another room and 50 people in another room. Okay, but what are you doing at Crown Palace to make sure people are distancing? Uh, we are, the rooms that they're in are totally sealed off. So it will be one side you'll have, uh, if you have a party, you say it's the, you know, the Dollywall family. There'll be 50 people on one side. They will have no access to the other guests and they have their own bathrooms. They have their own buffet area where the food is served. Um, and that's it. Basically, there's the beverages. Beverages are served there on one side, and then say you're on the other side. That's the next family party will happen, and uh, they will have their own uh, buffet area, beverage service, restrooms, entrances, exits to come and go. So, how are the tables set up, though? Is it six people to a table? Like, what are you doing to make sure people are staying at those tables? So, what we're doing is we're doing family tables. So say if you come with your family and you have a family of, uh, say, four or five people, but to a maximum of six guests on one table. So that family is first seated to the table. It's done by table numbers. So you come to the hall. You come. Your name is written there. You go to your table. That's your table number. Uh, a manager or a supervisor from our banquet facility will come to you, take the information of one guest down so we know that who's attending. And so that person is that one family is accounted for in our records just in case something does happen. Right. right and Mike. then they are not allowed to get up and get food themselves or drinks. What they do is they have a table number. Uh, they're, they're just kind of, it's kind of like a, Michael actually recommended this. It worked out great for the events. Uh, it's, a, it's like a green card. If you want something, you put a green card up, a red card if you don't want nothing. And then a server comes to you and asks you what you would like to eat or drink, and then that food is then served to you. All right, Michael, what's going on at Riverside Banquet Halls? Are you holding events, large events like that as well? Uh, No, not large events. We're keeping our gatherings under 50 because we have no divider. We don't have separate halls, uh, like uh, within separate rooms within one hall. So our gatherings have been 50 people, and we are following the same protocols uh, like at restaurants. So as soon as everybody comes in, 
their hands are sanitized while they're coming in through the doors. Uh, we get a list of all the, uh, the guests that are arriving for the event. So if there is any tracing, contact tracing, we can go back to the, we can go back and we know each person that was at our events. And uh, same idea, the, the, uh, the tables are all spaced out in our halls. We have large facilities, you know, from six to 8,000 square feet. So uh, our rooms are. So we have, we've got uh, tables, uh, distant tables. Uh, each table can fit up to six people per family. And uh, also, just like, just like a restaurant, we're bringing the food to you. Uh, a server comes to you. Uh, ask you if you need so everybody's just kind of just been sitting down and just uh yeah just just we're following just like the restaurant policies that are out there today right are you also making sure though if you see people getting up and table hopping which let's face it happens at parties and events are you making sure they're not doing that uh yes our staff are uh, mentioning to people that hey you guys got to stay on your tables also when the mc usually the mc of events uh, they're announcing right at the beginning and throughout the event that, you know, uh, it's all self-distancing. Please stay at your tables. Uh, and then with the no rules, with the no dancing and no moving around. So the DJ knows, you know, not to, not to play the music loud. That encourages people to dance. So we are uh, doing as much as we can. Uh, and then so far it's been working. It's worked, working well with our group at Riverside here in Richmond. Okay, so yeah. then let me ask both of you. What do you think? I'll start with you, Souk. What did you think sure. about what the health minister had to say yesterday, that he feels that there's stuff going on at banquet halls that shouldn't be happening, and they're thinking about cracking down? Oh, no, they're more than welcome to come. They're totally, that's, it's within their rights to come check our facilities because if we're in violations of any health codes and stuff, that's on us. And they have every right to take action. But, you know, that's not what our intent is, or that is not what we are doing. We're following the protocols. We're following the rules. We're doing whatever we have to do to make sure everything is done in a safe manner. And, Michael, how about so, you? Uh, same thing as Sukha saying, like, uh, for example, when Madame Bonnie Henry opened up for nightclubs and stuff, you know, some nightclubs followed follow the protocol, and some pubs and restaurants, or some nightclubs and pubs did not. Uh, on our team here in, in Richmond, uh, with our organization, you know, we're following the protocols. I can't say for every banquet hall operator on what they're what they're doing, and uh, you know, either they're following the rules or they're or not following the rules. But uh, us as a team here, we are 100% following the do- rules. Uh, you know, public safety is the most important thing to us right now at this at this moment in life. You know, this is, we we take this ser- uh, this matter very serious, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so so we're following 100% of the protocols that are in place and we're willing to as time goes as you know as as whatever new, new things come at us we'll we'll be following them 100 percent. now michael have you known have you heard of or do you know of other banquet halls that perhaps aren't following the rules uh not really uh, we don't know which ones but we did uh, we heard that last week uh, i don't know which banquet hall but one of the operators out in surrey uh i guess they had extra people uh and then uh, i guess the city came down and maybe uh, and told them to shut down and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it's just, we just want to be, you know, we can't, it's kind of hard when, you know, when one person is doing something and another person is not following, it's really hard. It's, it's hard, but mm-hmm. my recommendation to everybody out there in pubs, restaurants, banquet halls, you know, follow the rules. It's a very serious matter. Uh, you know, we've got to be, you know, and that, that'll help us uh, going forward. It will help us going forward to reopen the economy, reopen uh, restaurants reopen pubs, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so we're just trying to see. Everybody must follow the rules, right? Yeah. That's where we're at right now. Suk, what have you heard? Do you know of places that are not following the rules? I've, I've just I've been away for about a week. I'm just I'm still not back. I'm out in the soyas right now. But uh, yeah, I heard something about that too. But I haven't really figured out which one it was. But 
Yeah, there's what we, you, people book our events. They book the halls. They say, yeah, we have 50 people. Okay, you come 50 people, and next thing you know, they got 60, 70 people. It's really hard for somebody to say no, I guess, in that situation, but they have to follow the protocols. You have to follow the rules. Tell people, go home. I don't know. You just got to get them out of there. Okay, but, is that the problem then? You feel like people aren't following the rules? Like they're trying to get around them somehow? Because why would we have extra guests, right? It's the people that are booking the parties. Right. So you're saying right. that you have to actually turn business away then because people are trying to get around the rules. If people are asking us to book events for larger groups, we are telling them no. We're telling them no. We're not going to do that. Keep your number under 50. We'll book your event. Simple. So that's and then it's, they, they have extra guests come. I think that's Michael. I think that's what the situation was. With right. this one that got shut down. I'm not sure, but yeah, that's what I heard. And okay. So both of you were saying, though, Suke and Michael, both of you were saying to health officials, listen, if you want to show up and check our place, go ahead and do that. Well, yeah. No, no it's, that's totally, that's, there's, they can have, totally have the right to do so. So it's all good. Okay. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Appreciate that. Great. Thanks, Simi, having us on your uh, talk show. Anytime. That is Sukman, who's the owner of Crown Palace Banquet Hall in Surrey. Michael Gira, who's the food and beverage manager at Riverside Banquet Halls in Richmond. We wanted to get their take after hearing Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday say that they believe that there are banquet halls out there that are not following the rules and they want, they're going to have public health officials uh, going around to places this weekend to make sure uh, these two people say, hey, come on, go ahead. We're doing the best that we can to follow the rules. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it has been a, a great, fun summer tradition for, what, 20 years or so? Uh, and we really miss it. A lot of us do this summer, and that is the Richmond Night Market. And unfortunately, because of everything that's happened, they're now saying, the organizers are, that if they don't get some help, some government aid, if they don't qualify for that, they might not ever be able to relaunch again. So we wanted to talk about that. Joining us now is Raymond Chung, who's the founder of the Richmond Night, Mar- Night Market. Raymond, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Now, this was the 20th year, was it not, for the market? It is. It is a big year. Uh, <laughs> it was our 20-year anniversary. And I know you had a lot of plans, didn't you, to celebrate that? Yeah, so since uh, last year, September, when the uh, our events uh, finished, so we were, you know, doing this big preparation, and uh, we're all excited and uh, trying to do something very big and special for this summer. Okay, but on that shut you down then. So what is it that you need, Raymond? What kind of a financial hit have you taken on this? It's uh, quite amazing that, uh, you know, since because this is our 20-year anniversary, we spend quite a bit of uh, uh, money uh, expenses, not only preparing for this year, but also, you know, the rent that we are, uh, that we are facing on our property you know, we're sitting on a 24 acre of land. Uh, you can imagine how much money that we are yeah. paying, uh, and we're leasing in 12, 12 months a year. Uh, you know, since last year, we have no income, and we're hoping that uh, our event would open this on May 8 this year. But unfortunately, because of the uh, pandemics, uh, nothing was happening. And we were, you know, back in May, was hoping that we could, in the worst scenario, was maybe postpone the event till uh, August or July to open. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be happening as well. Uh, but, you know, we were seeking, uh, you know, if there's anything that the uh, maybe the government could uh, have any support that could help in our situation. But, uh, you know, the funny thing is that since 
since May, we've been trying to uh, seek uh, from the federal, from the provincial, but we applied it maybe five, five to six different programs, but right. they, uh, none of them actually we are eligible. And so far, we have like nothing. We have zero dollar that was able to uh, support mm-hmm to our event at so, this time. So, Raymond, I guess it seems like, given that it's the night market and it's seasonal, does it seem like perhaps it just kind of falls between the cracks of what is being offered out there? Yeah, it's, uh, th- the thing is about the night market is, uh, for example, like a couple uh, weeks ago, the federal had a uh, $20 million uh, program funding for festival and event. You know, at that time, we were excited and hoping that we could be part of this uh, program. But, when we apply, we were not able to, and they, um, you know, they explained that, you know, this uh, money, $20 million, was actually only for musical festival, uh, very specific to event related to, to to music. And even though Nine Market, we have a stage, we have music, but we're not dedicated as a music festival. So it seems like all the program is very specific to a specific industry or, uh, or business. Nine Market is so unique and different that we don't really fall into any specific program right. because that is the main issue and why we keep not hitting and we're hitting the wall. <laughs> we're not, yeah. and we're falling between the cracks and you're right. Yeah. So if you, if you don't get any help then Raymond, what does that mean? Is that like the end of the night market for good? Well, we are like pretty much we, we're, we spend over, over a million dollars just to, uh, you know, preparing for this year, all, all the new 10, everything we spend. And then you can imagine that, you know, after all the money is being spent and we have no income until next year, May. And somehow we have to survive from now that's still paying the rent till next year. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty tough and it's almost impossible without anybody help. And it's just, just the reality of our situation right now. Okay, so if you have a message then to government or anybody who can help, uh, what would you like to tell them? Well, it's uh, summer is almost over. <laughs> and I know the uh, um, the government did have a plan for the tourism industry have some sort of funding and support. And I, I think that, you know, I hope that they can uh, have something to come as soon as possible because uh, those businesses related to the uh, tourism can't wait anymore. It just uh, is, is, is September. All right. Well, listen, good luck, Raymond, and let us know how it goes, okay? I appreciate your call. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That is Raymond Chung, who's the founder of the Richmond Night Market. And as you heard him say, they kind of just, they fall in between the cracks of all the different funding and support programs that are out there because they're seasonal. It's not a music festival. It's the night market where people come to buy stuff, but it's hugely popular. And he said, if they don't get some help, then that, that is going to be the end of it permanently. And they're hoping that somehow they can be fit into one of these assistance categories out there. So we'll let you know how that goes. It's a hugely popular event. And I'd hate to see the end of that, uh, that being the Richmond night market. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this will come as good and welcome news to a lot of people out there. The province has announced that they are doubling the number of youth addiction treatment beds over the next few years. But let's dive right into the details of this. How soon will this be available and how many are we talking about? So joining us now is Judy Darcy, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, to talk more about it. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to. Good morning, Simi. Good morning. How many beds are we talking about here? 
We're talking about 123 new beds that I announced yesterday. But just last week, we actually also opened 20 new beds at a, a wonderful new youth treatment facility in Chilliwack. So that for, that's a total of 143 new beds in um, it just just announced within the last 10 days. And when will all of these beds be available? Well, we're we're working to get, we're working with health authorities to get them open as quickly as we possibly can. So I would expect that we, the first ones we would see open would be um, providers, operators in the community who provide uh, treatment beds that have existing spaces that aren't funded or or for which people now have to pay thousands of dollars a month, and so those beds are sitting empty because they're not affordable. So it it, it could be. Uh, operators in the community who have spaces. I think those will probably be the first. But we're also working very closely with health authorities as they assess where the greatest need is. Now, I I say that recognizing that we only have 140, 104 youth treatment beds in the province, yeah. period. And I'm talking about all types of beds, the detox or withdrawal management beds, the residential recovery beds, and the more intense uh, um, treatment beds where you also have psychiatric support and and more health support. So 104 total. So certainly there are all areas of the province that have needs. They're going to be really trying to narrow it down. What kinds of beds do we need in what region and where do we have none? Um, Where do we not have enough? And that work is happening very, very quickly. One of the concerns that I've heard from parents who have kids who have addictions is that there's not a streamlined process, right? That they their child needs help, they know their child needs help, and they need essentially a, a number to call or somebody that you can put them in touch with that will point them in the right direction for all of these things. How are we working on that aspect of the system? Well, we, 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 we are working on that, and we are working on building the entire continuum of care because the care needs really vary. And so we need to start with prevention, and we've done a lot of work in the area of prevention, including more mental health programming in schools, and we want to do substance use programming, more substance use prevention programming in schools, foundry youth centers. We've announced that we're opening a total of 19 across the province. That's a place where uh, young people and their parents can walk in the door, get seen right away, uh, whether it's substance use issues or mental health or other health issues, and get wraparound care and then get connected to the more specialized supports that they need. We're also integrating mental health and substance use professionals into primary care teams, so into your family practices, whether it's doctors or nurse practitioners, but adding mental health and substance use folks there more addiction and mental health counselors and community agencies, and then more treatment beds as well. And that's in addition to all of the very specific things we're doing to respond to the overdose crisis, like access to safe supply Mm -hmm. of safe prescription alternatives to poison drug supply. So we really are working to build that continuum of care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have certainly heard from one parent after another, we have to knock on one door after another, after another, and that needs to change. You mentioned the opioid crisis there. Uh, We're hearing already from BC paramedics that July was just, you know, unbelievably crazy busy. Do we need, what more do we need to do at this point? Like, do we need to expand the access to that safe supply? Because you're right, the the toxicity in the drug supply is, is terrible. It is, and we are expanding it. Literally, there are teams of people working on that as we speak. We're working to get the existing, uh, you know, we brought in those guidelines for safe supply of prescription meds to separate people from toxic drug supply. Within a couple of weeks, 
after the pandemic was declared. And now we are working with doctors and nurse practitioners and pharmacists and rural doctors as well to get the word out, to get have people access training that is put on right. by the BC Centre on Substance Use to get it out across the province because that is about... That's about saving lives right now. And for those people who say we spend, we focus on harm reduction at the exclusion of other pieces of the of care, well, we are building across the continuum of care, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But people have to be alive in order to have a pathway to hope. Uh, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, thank you so much, Simi. I appreciate Bye-bye. that. That's Judy Darcy, Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, sometimes on the show, we come across people who have very unique jobs and unique job titles. And I love talking to them because how they got to that title is usually a very interesting story, like our next guest. His name is Jacques Martiquet. His specialty is partying in the time of COVID. Yes, you heard that right. He is a specialist in how to do it safely and properly. So when we heard that, we had to get in touch. Here's our chat with Jacques Martiquet. Well, Jacques, thanks so much for being with us today. Tell, okay, explain to me again, what is it exactly that you do? Well, I'm an international celebration scientist, and for the last five years, I've traveled across the world bringing together strangers in shared joy creation. What I do in Vancouver is I educate people on how to pursue happiness in a very different way. And that way is by incorporating shared joy and uh, a different way of socializing in one's life. And, and that's the premise of Vive, which is my social enterprise. Okay. And how does one get a job like yours? Yeah. Um, <laughs> man, I, I'm not sure. I've only met. So I've traveled across Europe. And so from September to December, I was traveling across Europe with the intention to meet other celebration scientists. And another thing I'll mention is that I take the science very seriously. So I studied pharmacology in school, and I'm really excited about the science of human connection and the science of happiness. Um, so, yeah, I was traveling across Europe, and I didn't really meet other true scientists. I met people who were DJs and whatnot. Um, I would say... Uh, how do you get a job like this? You study public health for a bit, um, and then you, you geek out on a lot of books about happiness, um, and then you also um, get a sound box and discover the art of dancing and spreading joy in public, and that will convince you that it's a meaningful cause to pursue. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about the ways. I know one of the things you're also talking about with people right now is the ways that we can still have these social experiences, uh, but safely. So how do we do that? That's right. So I believe the public health benefits of moving our body, sharing joy with one another, looking each other in the eyes, and creating fun that is so important, and we can do it safely. We can do it safely, and we just need to socialize a little differently. Um, and so we've been doing events at Vive for the last two months or so, and we have, uh, we have a COVID protocol, and we, we facilitate the event in a way that makes it more fun uh, and, and still a euphoric experience. And so what we do is, first of all, we, we remind people of the protocol. And so, you know, 
people who come to an event, they are educated on a protocol and they realize that a lot of other people um, there expect others to social distance. So we have a norm within the experience that, you know, to follow public health guidelines. All of our events are outdoors, and I think that is one of the most significant uh, safety measures ever, is we're outdoors, we're in the wind, we're usually moving as well. We're not in a single place. So we've done bike rides, we've done hike hikes together, we've done beach, beach social distances, Um, The other thing I want to mention is that we have a designated safety marshal. So we're wearing public vests, we have cones, we have whistles, and we also have signage. We have a big sign that promotes social distancing, and it's on a giant LED stick that we'll occasionally use for limbo as well. (laughs) And so in addition to that, in addition to whistling at people, uh, to remind them to social, uh, physically distance, we have um, we have cones, and then we also use a microphone to remind people constantly. So everyone who comes to our event is educated on the value and the possibility that we can have uh, high intensity fun while refraining from touching and while refraining from being super close to one another. Now, Jock, do you think people are surprised to hear that when you say, hey, listen, this can still be done and done safely? I I think it does surprise people because we have this ingrained way of socializing. We have all this social conditioning preventing us from being playful, preventing us from sharing joy with strangers, preventing us from dancing wildly. Uh, and so it is, it is very surprising. Uh, most people, you know, when they think of partying and socializing, they think of drinking games, they think of hanging out, having some food, drinking. They don't think of like, we're going to go through this park and everyone's going to be cheering and smiling. We're going to get all these strangers up and doing the YMCA, the Macarena, <laughs> you know, or we're going to get all these people to do us a, a physically distant conga line, you know. Um, we use all these shared activities and we have this facilitated approach to our social gatherings, and you bet it surprises people because how we socialize right now doesn't leverage the benefits of positive psychology. We don't facilitate, we don't structure it around shared emotions, right? Okay, yeah. so then, Jacques, if people want to find out more, if they are intrigued by what you are saying, where can they reach you and where can they find out more? Well, with me on LinkedIn, Chief Celebration Scientist, only one. Uh, in addition to that, uh, they can check out vive.life. That's our website, D-Y-V-E dot life. And, uh, or you can just Google, you know, part Jacques, the party scientist, like Jacques, uh, the Frenchman. And yeah. I, I'm absolutely sure people will be able to find you. Jacques, thanks so much for your time. Yeah.